It's our Halloween episode, and we've summoned a very special guest. Aki Navaz began as a founding member of Southern Death Cult, who along with bands like Bauhaus created the template for gothic rock. By the early 90s, he moved to London and founded Nation Records, who signed Asian Dev Foundation and Talvin Singh. Politicians have been calling for his censorship for over a decade, such as Labour MPs like Andrew Dishmore and Roy Hattersley, who wanted him arrested for glorifying terrorism. We just think he's cool as fuck. <laughs> to talk more about Aki Navaz, I hit up my old friend, Bobby Friction, a longtime presenter at the BBC. Hey, Barsim, I'm just going to talk, okay? So the first, basically, uh, throughout the 80s, apart from the Bhangra scene, uh, those of us with a more alternative uh, frame of mind, and also uh, the many British Asians, our second generation, you know, all of us had parents who were born overseas. We, we were the first children of that first wave of immigration. I literally hadn't heard anything but Bhangra, and then, you know, I was in the public enemy and all that kind of stuff at the time. And um, my friend gave me a cassette and it was one of the early nation releases. It was the first version of Sister India, which I think later on became Mother India. And there was a couple of other songs on this. It was their first EP on a cassette. I couldn't believe it. My mind opened up, my universe opened up, and I just couldn't believe what I was listening to. I couldn't believe music like this even existed in the world because it wasn't like all of us was, were hearing this music and were hoping to hear fusion. We just knew that we liked alternative UK music and uh, we liked Bhangra, uh, which we felt was British. Uh, and we knew that, oh, you know, there must be some other sounds coming down the line. And the first sounds coming down the line I heard were fundamental. So you can imagine it was a, an oral and, and a sensual and musical revolution on a, on a, on a cassette. Inside the cassette inlay, they had a picture of Fundamental and it said, like, Nation Records, and they even had the address and the phone number of Nation Records. And literally, I don't know what drove me to this, I just phoned them up. You know, like, I was only, I don't know, uh, 18 at the time, and I, I just phoned them up, and I just phoned up to say, oh, you know, this is fucking amazing. And I ended up speaking to Aki. And... Um, I was just like, oh, you're amazing. I didn't even say much other than, oh, have you got any work going on? Stuff like that. And Aki literally said, oh, why didn't you come down? Come down next week. And me and my two friends uh, went, caught, on the, caught the train and ended up meeting Aki and sitting in an office. I couldn't believe this. I thought record labels were just main, mainstream record labels or indie record labels. I didn't realize that this one band with one cassette had this whole fucking office. And I walked in and I spent the whole afternoon there basking in Aki's knowledge and his revolutionary fervor. And um, yeah, I just felt like I made a connection. I felt like I'd, I'd met a guru type figure, a wizard type figure. And um, yeah, he, I mean, look, they had no jobs. They were doing their own, whatever their own stuff. And they were, he was just like, make music. You know, he really was like a Svengali type figure. And I think he knew what he was doing in the sense that he felt this, but he totally packaged it. But even when we met him in this rock and roll fervor, you know, it was like sitting in a room with uh, a Pakistani kind of Johnny Rotten, uh, you know, a punk, uh, a hippie, a revolutionary figure. And my life changed after that. So I never worked for Nation Records, but I had a relationship from the early days. Um, you were just in Pakistan, you were saying? You were just, uh, when did you get back? Are you jet lagged? Yeah, yeah. I, I got stuck in Pakistan for about six months because of the virus thing. But it was, uh, it was interesting. You know, uh, Whereabouts in just, Pakistan were you? Uh, Rawalpindi. That's okay. where. I, yeah, I'm just. Uh, I'm apparently I'm from. I was born in 
just outside Rawalpindi. And I was born in this place called Mandra, which is notorious for murders, murderers. So I <laughs> spent... Yeah, so I just spent a lot of time in the village, just getting, you know, and I travelled to Pakistan quite a lot, but this time I spent a lot more time in the village just trying to understand people. And, you know, I quite like it just as an observer and seeing the thought processes and the context of their thoughts, how they function, the difference, blah, blah, blah. And also finding out that, um, you know, my family had been ripping off my mum and my dad for years and years and stealing their land and all that stuff. So it was all, it's really interesting dynamics, you know. It sounds kind of like a common work. story, right? Like it's a common story that you're, you have parents that are like um, earning money where? In Bradford? And then yeah, yeah, yeah. We came, we came straight from Pakistan straight to Bradford. And uh, for those people that don't know, Bradford is... Uh, it's kind of called the Little Pakistan. Isn't uh, Zan Malik from there, from One Direction? Wasn't he from Bradford? Yeah, yeah, he is, actually. He came after me. And I can, yeah, 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 after you. Yeah, yeah he came after me. Um, <laughs> so, but Bradford's really um, an amazing place uh, for its history. And it's actually, it's quite interesting, but it's quite an alternative place. A lot of sub subversiveness happened in Bradford long before the immigrants came. It was something in the water, that's what they said. So, and I was reading the history of it. So I thought, oh, brilliant. So if, you know, if people before us were subversive, well, then we can be subversive. The only difference will be that we're immigrants or we're from a different country. And so that brings in different dynamics and narratives and things like this. Yeah, Nashua, you want to ask something? I could go somewhere um, with that. Um, I, I like, uh, my questions are for when we get a bit into uh, more of your music, uh, but I was, uh, yeah, but I was very excited to have you on because um, this is not a genre I usually engage with and I'm grateful to have engaged with it, but also to see the history you've mapped out for younger Pakistanis and South Asians in England. And I think the South Asian subculture in England is so different than Canada. Like we have a very different diasporic art scene here. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I want, I'm wondering like um, if you could even like map it, map it out a little bit for us, like what it was like being, I would say one of the like more foundational members of South Asian creatives and Pakistani creatives. Well, I don't, um, yeah, well, I mean, I don't really come from a creative family. And for those that understand Punjabi, um, you know, I became a Marasi, mm. <laughs> which is like a kind of a derogatory uh, term in, in Punjabi or Urdu. So, uh, you know, my parents didn't want anything like this. We just, you know, we were peasants. They came here for a better life, just like everybody else's story. Uh, and, but we rebelled. But my love for music started really early and I can remember I used to go to school and watch young English native English guys playing guitars and and and, and I just fell in love with music in, in a very innocent way and um, we weren't really allowed to listen to that western music in the house uh, my parents listened to more to Lata and Muhammad Rafi and, and the Kowalis and things like this. And they thought it was, uh, Western music was Besharam, you know, um, but the me is uh, everything. So, <laughs> so I used to sneak away and listen to a lot of stuff. Uh, obviously pop, pop music when I was very young. Uh, and then there were some alternative older Asian people around. So they were quite interesting in themselves, which we never talk about. We always pretend that the first generation or that came here, them first, that first diaspora back in the 60s, we always pretend that they were all very conservative and things like this, but there were some real weirdos. There were some really weird people around and they had, and you know, we come from a, a culture thousands and thousands of years old. You know, 
which also has its dreadlocks and its malungs and its piri fakiri weird poetry and things like this. But no, people don't talk about them connections. They always present the immigrant as coming here to work and make the money. But there was, you know, there was poetry going on in my house from uh, my, my dad's friends would come round. So there was always that alternative. You know, the alternative thing is not exclusive to me. Unlike some people talk about it, I think it was there well before. You know, there's a whole history of South Asian culture which is more alternative than Western alternative that has even arrived at at the moment. You know, I mean, like uh, alternativeness in the West is more, I find, more of a kind of romantic notion of oppression or sadness and things like this whereas from south asia it's a reality uh, so i think my creative thing came round about 15 when after i used to steal money from my father's shop to buy drums and i was so i was so focused on being in a band i had to be in a band i don't know why maybe i, I was trying to uh, Maybe we never got any girlfriends or something like that. And I thought being in a band, we might be able to get some girlfriends <laughs> yeah. or something. I don't know. It was a weird um, thing. But I know that my father, were, my family and my father were definitely were not happy about it. But I was, um, I was determined. I was very, very determined. I think my determination has always been more powerful than my talent mm. or my knowledge of music or my um, theory, you know, I don't have any knowledge about the theory of music or whatever. I was just determined. That determination has carried me through all these years. Yeah, and um, that era, right, uh, when you were 15, I keep on, one thing I keep coming across when I see, uh, like, Bobby Friction's documentary on uh, UK Bangra is, like, this timeline where... Asians were turned away at clubs like back in the day or they weren't like allowed into some clubs at night or they weren't even given admittance like what was that all about like because it just sounds really surreal to me but when they talk about places like um, Anoka or like even before that for like the standard Bhangra scene and um, that to do daytime shows because at night they couldn't run Asian events and then it was also apparently difficult for I don't know if this is true or not. Just wondering if you well, could take us I mean, there, because it's hard for me to see, imagine that, how I grew up. Well, it depends, because it depends when your timeline begins. My timeline began when I was 15, um, and, you know, the first band I ever saw was the Sex Pistols. Hmm. Um, so, and after that, I mean, we I used to go to all the clubs, and I didn't really, I, I don't recall having any problems getting into clubs, but I also recall before Saturday Night Fever had happened, John Travolta and things like this. And I recall a lot of Pakistani or South Asian people thought John Travolta was like half Pakistani, as they thought Elvis, <laughs> as they thought Elvis Presley was half Pakistani. Because so you know he had that complexion. So you know when we had, I met some older older generation. And they they were telling me stories of when they used to go to the clubs and all the local kind of gaudies would love them, mm. and there'd be there'd be fights because the the kind of South Asian men would actually look a bit more like Elvis Presley than um, than mm. kind of uh, Buddy Holly, you know. All the white guys look like Buddy Holly, and all the Asian <laughs> guys look like Elvis Presley, uh. and. And all the girls used to really love the Asian men and there used to be always be fights at the end. So when Bobby, Bobby Friction either talks about his timeline, his timeline begins a bit later than mine. Mm. My, my whole thing starts at, uh, I mean, even before I got into music, there was still alternative stuff going on in my life. Um, alternative thoughts and uh, looking for, you know, I, I knew there was something bubbling inside me. I wasn't really following the norm, you know, from from just basic life stuff. Um, I don't know if that answers the questions, uh, Nashua, but um, 
Yeah. It's very complex, but then there's it's almost like one question, there's a hundred answers. That's a problem for me in my life because there's lots of, uh, there was lots of influences coming. You know, you'd wake up in the morning as a Pakistani. You'd have your prata as a Pakistani. You'd go to school and suddenly you were a bit of a, you know, you'd turn into a bit of being a bit English. Then at dinner time, you'd go back to being Pakistani because you'd go home and eat. And then the, by the afternoon, you'd come back and you, by five o'clock, you'd, uh, you'd be going to the mosque and become a Muslim. And then you'd come back out and then you'd go out on the streets and you're doing something else with different people. So you have all these different characters happening inside your life uh, every day, which is very, very interesting. So you, you, it's almost like I quite enjoy the fact to admit that there was probably a lot of confusion in our personalities. It wasn't an easy, uh, you know, an easy path to negotiate. There was just many paths going throughout your life. And, you know, you were telling a lot of lies or pretending to be somebody at different times of the day. And it's like growing up in Bradford, I'm just assuming that most of the, there's probably, was there always a sizable community that you grew up with then? Because you're describing your dad and his friends coming and sharing poetry. So it seems like you had like a cohort, even you yourself in Bradford. Like uh, when, when I saw you in the UK, you had a bunch of old Asian friends who had like participated in the punk, the first wave of the punk scene, like together back in the day. I'm just wondering, when did you start, um, you said you first show with Sex Pistols. Like what was the, the early like sneaking out to shows? Was it just you? There are a lot of kids in Bradford who are onto it. Was it... Um, well, and then well, did, it, were everyone's parents South, similar? Were the Pakistan, were you, were your parents and other Pakistan, were they all kind of rural mentality as well in terms of the, where the parents came yeah, from? Yeah, I mean, you know, they were the first wave. So the, everybody was still young, uh, that wave. Uh, firstly, I think it was, it was actually my brother, my elder brother, who was like a year and a half older than me or something. He got into punk, which was bizarre. And after about three or four months, I listened to a record he'd brought home. I think it was The Clash or something. And as soon as I put it on on this cheap Wi-Fi, hi-fi system, um, I just fell in love with it. And I was just like totally sold out to it. I think I was waiting for something alternative in my life to turn up anyway. Um, so in terms, yeah, I, I mean, my father was a bit of a, you know, he was... He was naturally quite intelligent and he'd, he, he, he could speak good English. And so everybody would turn up at our house, getting their forms filled in, passports, try to bring in family. So uh, there weren't that many Pakistanis, but there was enough to have a community there. Uh, so uh, it was, um, you know, and I still keep in touch with some of his friends. I mean, obviously my parents have passed away, but some of the first... Some of the first wave, I've got great relationships and I sit down and talk to them about what their dilemmas were and how they, you know, how they felt when they first came here. Because the first wave came round about 60, you know, uh, 1959, 1960. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting on, you know, their stories. Uh, and that has been put into my work you know, in the bigger scheme of things. Uh, but they've got fantastic stories. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I, I get very kind of uh, excited by how I talk to them and I ask them, well, tell me about your life before you came here and then how you arrived here and how you were received and how did you perceive and how... You know, and all these things, all these elements come in. And they really enjoy talking about it because not many people ask them about some of the deeper stuff, you know. How did they get married? Why did they get married? And who did they leave back there? And what are the sadness aspects of it? Because people don't talk about how young people, 17, 18 year old in that first wave, came across here. They never saw their parents again, um, you know, their relatives and... You know, I'm quite interested in the deeper debate, not just the the icing on the cake. I think there's some very interesting kind of uh, branches and tentacles that go back. Mm -hmm. And from them discussions, I found out that 
Some of them were very alternative themselves, back back from the homeland, back when they were lived in the villages, and you know um, the singing aspects and the musical aspect and things like this. So, you know, for a long time, I think that we've been kind of lying to ourselves that everything that we are is about being here in the UK. Uh, I think a lot of people are just trying to be British. But that alternative culture exists in our culture. It's existed for thousands of years. Yeah. Um, yeah, when you talk about Peer and Fakiri and, um, and the dreadlocks, as you said, like Malungs. Um, but I was just curious, though, with the... Um, what was the you said drums you picked up your first your first instrument was the drums right that was your first thing but you're you're most well known for i think um being more of a producer so how did that change like what was that that journey like from being a drummer to working with electronics how did that happen yeah well i don't ever think i understood the concept of drums but in southern death cult i had my own style and I don't know where I was coming from. I don't know where I was going. I don't know how I was doing what I was doing, but it was working. So I never really understood music, like I said before. But um, but it was basically, you know, I'd we had the Southern Death Cult. We split up. Then we had another band called Getting the Fear, which was based on Charles Manson. From Bradford to Manchester in our ORS studios, welcome Getting the Fear with their Yaroon. <laughs> And then, uh, then we had another band called Joy, uh, which was more of a funk thing, but kind of uh, a bit like Brilliant, which, oh, was, okay. uh, which was a killing joke, kind of youth did his Brilliant thing. We did quite a few gigs with Brilliant. But uh, the learning curve in Southern Death Cult was amazing and brilliant. I mean, that's where, again, my timeline starts of, of understanding the music industry and what it was all about and how it tried to kind of determine your future and your career and how it tried to manipulate you and um, dominate your thoughts and uh, things like this. But we were we, we were very resistant to, resistant to that. And the life of Southern Death Cut was only like 18 months. But in them 18 months, the amount of work that we'd done for the alternative heads, I mean, yeah, you mentioned Bauhaus, Theatre of Hate, Killing Joke, The Clash, um, many, many bands, big bands that became big, uh, you know, we were there with them. So there was a great learning experience and, and picking up of alternative culture, which was also very uh, interesting. We were hanging around with, you know, very weird people. Uh, and and uh, who'd also dropped out of society and things like this, so it wasn't alien to me. It was it, 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 I suddenly kind of blossomed in that environment, and then we just came across to. Um, then after the bands, I just uh, came down, did a bit of management. Then we decided it was uh, <clears throat> the Bangra thing happened. Went down to Electric Ballroom. And I just saw like a thousand Asian people, kids jumping up and down, going mental. And I just thought, this is punk rock. Bhangra. But Asian people during the day. Yeah. Um, mainly they were going during the day because they were obviously not allowed out at night. I don't think it was anything to do with having been turned away from clubs at that time. <clears throat> But it was all the students uh, going out and, you know, 13, 14-year-old kids having a good time but telling their parents they were at the library or the, or the you know, they were revising or they'd been uh, held back in detention. And they'd all get dressed up and look good and uh, just watching them kind of pogo to... Uh, the Bangra bands was quite interesting, and especially when you looked at the Bangra bands, because they all looked like failed Elvis Presleys. 
and they were mm. all glitter up and yeah, you know. So it was something very interesting. Yeah, you know, you, you land on something when you said that because Apna Sangeet, you think of them in their white leather um, outfits. They had like onesies. They wore these like white leather onesies. They had the pomade. Their singer had that long shoulder length greasy hair. Absolutely, yeah. Um, <laughs> no, Elvis is definitely, now you've mentioned it, it's like, wow, Elvis and Bhangra, like, wow, that's so interesting to see. I mean, it also is like shows like how it's always been kind of a fusion thing. <laughs> you know, it's always been a little yeah, rock yeah. and roll in that way. Um, but you have a but great have quote. To, oh, sorry, we have to rem- sorry, we have to remember that Bollywood had them films, them kind of pretending rock and roll films and rock and roll kind of uh, Bollywood songs. So, you know, again, we attempt to start a timeline in, in, in Britain. But for me, the timeline was already there before we arrived in Britain and, and after we arrived in Britain. Uh, so, uh, you know, you look at Chani from a LARP, you, you know, he, he looked like a really um, overweight uh, miniature Elvis Presley, you know. So, um, and I can remember I used to have meetings with a lot of Bangra bands and I used to try to get them to be alternative. Oh, how did that go? Like, what, what, it, oh, that's so funny. Oh, it like, didn't, it didn't work at all. I used to go up, I met Janni and Apna Sangeet and Ahira and I'd say to him, listen, do you have to wear all them glittery clothes? Why don't you like kind of look like Clint Eastwood or, you know, <laughs> a, 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 in a cowboy film with all the dust and, you know, um, all these alternative kind of thought process? Uh, it didn't work. They'd just go, oh, I can't. Good point. Good point. I mean, you have a great quote in the that uh, Pump Up the Bhangra documentary where you say that uh, Bhangra is like really punk because it doesn't ask for approval from like the music press. It doesn't ask for approval from Western society. It doesn't need to adapt that much. And it's like kind of poetic because like the biggest, like you mentioned Apna Sangeet, right? And they're saying like, we don't have to change our clothes. And you think about it, that guy that played Tumbi, for Apna yeah. Sangeet, he got a hit with Mundiato Bachke Rahin. Like, that's literally the same Tumbi player from Apna yeah. Sangeet that was played in that, whatever, Midlands Bhangra group. Is the yeah. same guy who's playing Tumbi on that, like, smash global, like, Jay-Z hit. <laughs> so, well, well, it's I mean, like, they didn't have to change as much, you know what I mean? They didn't want to change. They didn't feel like they needed to adapt too much. They, they kept yeah, stayed they with the Tumbis. The <laughs> yeah. They didn't need the endorsement of anybody, which was really interesting. And also... If you look at the Bangra thing, you could actually, through some alternative aspects, look at it and go, this is quite like um, very alternative. You know, there's a lot of humor going on in the Bangra scene and everything like this. And uh, I'm trying to remember, uh, is it, what's them two guys in the alternative comedies in America? It's a very cultish, like you know, you could deal? present the whole Bangra scene as a very alternative cultish kind of aspect there was weird things going on around it uh-huh. so uh, i think it's fascinating you know it's presented as very lollipop but i think there's some really dark elements to it somewhere if you look for them it's interesting because in uh, canada like in brampton ontario which is like very well known for a population of punjabi folks bhangra has mainstreamed arguably where you have goras who no, and I can identify Bhangra and they have it in commercials and stuff. And I don't think people ever think deeply about it. If it's become almost um, meme-like, yeah. like kind of jokey, like look at the brown people, cue Bhangra music. Um, look at Jagmeet Singh, cue Bhangra music. And and I wish people sat with it more and were more thoughtful about it um, and just thought about the histories and like in like in a nuanced way and not just like, oh, these jokey, clowny brown folks, let's play some Bhangra. Yeah, I think that will come. I think... Um, it takes time. The problem is with us as a South Asian community, we were never trendy. We were never hip. Yeah. We were never attractive. I mean, you know, I always say, man, I was growing up at school and nobody looked at us, at the Asian guys. They always looked at the, you know, either the Afro-Caribbean or the, or, or the white guys. So we've never been that trendy as a, as a, as a force as a mm. 
a something, you know, uh, I don't know what the right word is, but uh, I think, and I, and I don't think we've actually arrived there yet. There's still time to go. And as we start, uh, on, you know, opening up the book and flicking over the pages and going back a bit, we'll find that there's a lot of things that we haven't been recognised for and the alternative side of us. and Because it hasn't been addressed, as you say, Nashua. It, that that it's, it's very... Um, uh, very it, it's being looked at in a very superficial manner. Like a lot of... A lot of I can tell you a lot of Bangra bands were absolutely political. There was a lot of political lyrics mm. going on. But nobody talked about it in the media in terms of journalism. They just presented it as glitter and all that stuff. But if you were to sit down with some of the Bangra artists and talk about politics of history and culture and religion, they they had so much more to say than than what was being presented. And I and, and I've always wondered why people don't bring that, you know, sit down and talk to people, give them time to express that aspect of them. Uh, um, you know, without I mean, I, I I recall, you know, people never think of Talvin Singh as political. They never see it. I know Talvin is very political. You know, we picked him up when he was fifteen or some sixteen, and we were managing him. Um, and Romy and Jazz, we used to manage the two girls, and when we sat down and had conversations about politics and culture and religion they were on the same page as I was uh, you know and, and and to some degree I can actually you know uh, happily say that Talvin was ahead of the game ahead of me you know because I'd you know I'd started before him but I was in a very kind of alternative white culture mm. but uh, but he had things to say which made me think more about my own culture, so, but no, no one ever talks to Talvin or interviews him about his political thoughts. But he's got them. Jenny's got them from a lap. I'm sure he has got them. I'm sure Abnasangit had them. Or you know, all these people. You know, it was all to do with marketing, and you know, people didn't want to really uh, project that aspect, mm. which is a shame, really, to be honest, because I think that. The movement could have got even bigger and, and, and more interesting if it had become more, you know. I mean, we look at rock and roll and it's such a wide landscape and we accept, um, you know, people start off the timeline for political music, Bob Dylan. For me, it was, it, you know, people were doing all that political, it came, it came from the blues. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, there's something wrong about the timeline, I think. This Bernard Shell is all that's left of the last place, that band, the Four Skins, played in. This is the Hambra Tavern in Southall, a largely Asian immigrant area. And it was here that three so-called oi bands, including the Four Skins, came on July the 3rd to play a concert. They brought with them hundreds of skinhead fans, many of them known National Front supporters, who'd been brought in by coach from the east end of London some 20 miles away. Before the concert, some of the skinheads assaulted elderly Asians in the street, and they daubed shop windows with National Front slogans. Later that night, the Asians retaliated, and what followed turned into a full-scale race battle. Threw petrol bombs and bricks through the windows. About the riots. Uh, I come from Hounslow and, you know, the South riots, basically West London riots. Um, they profoundly affected every single uh, one of us in London. And I think they profoundly affected every single South Asian across the country. They were, in quotation marks, the first proper Asian riot. Um, it was kind of two sets of riots, two disturbances. I think it was 79 and 81. Um, and uh, the one thing that I'm very aware of is it was the only time there were disturbances where everyone in the community reacted as one. And when I say that, I mean every generation. You know, any time there's a riot, especially in our matured 
democracies uh, with immigration, there'll always be some people on the right, some people on the left, even if most people of colour are on the left, there's always those people who sit on the right going, I can't believe this has happened. There's always generational differences, etc., etc., etc. All I know is about the South Rights is middle-class, well-to-do parents with right-wing values, even they would say, South Rights, we needed to do that. We spoke as one as a community. The reason why isn't because everyone in the community wanted the police to get a kicking, but everyone in the community just thought, that's it now. We've had enough of the the fascists and the skinheads and the packy bashing and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I remember a story from um, the bass player from a LARP that uh, one of the abiding memories of the Southall riots was basically some women rushing out, some aunties, and they had kind of crumbling brick walls outside the house, and they were kicking the walls in and then passing the stones and the rocks to uh, the rioters, who were mostly very young, and lots of them were part of the Southall Youth Movement, and uh, saying, look, take these, take these to throw at the fascists and the police. So that, that, that story everyone knows about, he told me that he was at the Southall riots and an auntie came out with chilli powder in a bowl and literally said, throw this at them. So what you had there was an early use of chemical weaponry, not from the state, but from people, from a community. And even that early use didn't come from radicals. It came from an auntie who basically said, why why not use this? in the riots. So anyway, I digress now, but the point is, is is there's been no riots, whether it's the Bradford riots or uh, any other disturbances since then, where the entire community spoke as one. It really felt like the most pivotal community-defining episode of that whole era, because up until then, um, I would say the system and even the, 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 the indigenous people of this country saw us uh, very differently. Uh, they saw us as a uh, weak, weak invading force um, who were changing the culture and uh, as aliens and as others. Uh, but they saw us as weak. That's, that's the whole thing. That changed everything uh, because... You know, the, the the tale goes, the fascists marched, um, the community fought back, the police then came in, and the community had to fight the police because the police were fighting us. Um, anyway, I'm losing my thread again, as per usual. That was our buddy Bobby Friction again, giving us some context. I mean, one thing I've always wondered and I wanted to ask you was about um, how there were those riots in South Hall. And how, like, um, that was something where I had an interest in punk music and I was like, oh, wait a minute, they, like, beat up Pakistanis or, like, wait a minute, there's this whole, um, there's this whole riots going on between, like, the National Front, the British National Party, um, uh, right-wing, you could say, skinheads and punks, um, and against the British Asian community and the Afro-Caribbean community. I'm just curious, um... Was that happening concurrently? And then did that put you in a weird place? Because you're someone who's got like, who's friends with the dudes in Bauhaus or Killing Joke or Southern Death Cult or you're friends with all these white punks. And I think that like, you know, they themselves also have to like ask like, oh shit, we, we're getting Budnam. We're getting a bad name as racist because of this riot. Um, because the Asians are calling us racist. Could be, could be something that they said. I'm just spitballing here. Yeah. Did it put you in a precarious place at all? <clears throat> or how, how did all these things unfold together? Well, well yeah. I mean, firstly, all the, the attacks on our, our communities were happening well before the punk scene anyway. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we, I, I got beaten up many times on the way to school. I can remember being knocked out um, so badly. I think I, were, uh, I, think I was unconscious unconscious for about maybe an hour in an alleyway and I was just hit by some white guy when I was I think I was only about 10 or 12 years old and 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 we were always picked on at school we were always called that horrible word the p word I I don't even like saying it myself so 
our t- again, our timeline started fighting that and, and seeing the changes and seeing, you know, we kind of slowly it became enough is enough. And up in Yorkshire and Bradford, there was a lot of National Front, a lot of skinheads would come into our areas. And the riots were basically, um, we've had enough. And, and suddenly, like, it wasn't a macho thing, but a lot of um, boys or men from our communities started to come out and say, well, we'll fight this. And these, you know, the Asian youth movement had started. Um, uh, they'd been making bombs in 1976, you know, <laughs> and about four or five of them were my friends, and they still remain my friends. Uh, so they were just very, very interesting times, but I think we'd had enough and we started to fight back. And, you know, the gory slowly and surely... I can remember being at school and suddenly the Gore were, were not the hardest guys in the school. It was somebody who'd just come from Pakistan who was 12 years old and had a beard. Uh, and uh, his, his parents had put his date, date of birth backwards so he could get some schooling. He was really 16 or 17 oh, years old. Oh, I love that. I'm... Yeah. <laughs> so, but it was great because... Suddenly, a guy called Shabir, I can remember Shabir Hussein, he was the best runner, he was the best cricketer, he was the best fighter, best swimmer. Um, he was, all the Goris, the young Goris really fell in love with him. But he had a beard and he was only 12 years old. And, um, and, 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 and but the dynamics began to change when we started to... You know, I'm not into violence, but we had to fight back. And uh, I think it was just a, you know, now, I can tell you now, when Gori's, if they still do come into our areas, there's all hell gets, all hell is let loose. You know, know, it's like, they, they haven't got a chance, to be honest. And they usually run a mile. Because, you know, generation after generation, there's, um, heard the stories from their parents and also the history of colonialism and things like this. So it's, it's all, you know, the whole story has got wider and wider and there's, there's different I think, aspects we do. Yeah, that, 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 that British uh, Asian diaspora, it gets a bad rep if you just take a casual look at Twitter. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like uh, they, they, they sometimes get stigmatized for... Being religious, being conservative, being like so-called backwards, which is essentially like classism sometimes to me. But then uh, um, on top of that, though, I was uh, curious about... Um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Sorry about that. Well, 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 well look, uh, we've always yeah. been stigmatized. They've always tried to generalize yeah. about us, but they can't. The truth of the matter is we're as messed up as any Gora and we're as, you know, we're as ama- amazing as any Gori, you know. <laughs> You know, the yeah. people people all over the world, we're all messed up, we're all chaotic. We've all, you know, I can find a Basim in South Africa and I can find a... Yeah, you can. Uh, you know, a Nashwa in Russia and you can find an Aki in, um, I don't know, Australia, New Zealand. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's just um, we've been indoctrinated to think really stupidly and really on a low level. And, and, and that's what I'm fighting against. Recently, that's what I've been fighting against. Also, you've got to think about it. Put this, think about this. Here is a community who hasn't hasn't endorsed or been, you know, they haven't just transformed into Western culture. Yeah. They're still walking around with shalwar kameez. Some of them have got dopies. Some are religious. Some are not. Some are, you know, um, some are still, you know, not learning English. Some are speaking Punjabi, and also there was a lot of Punjabis here, and you know Punjabis have got this kind of reputation for Josh, and, yeah. you know, they, go a bit, they get a bit angry very quickly. So, mm-hmm. um, so I think there was all these dynamics at play, but however people have written that history, I think there's a lot more nuances 
like Nashua says, that we haven't talked about, we haven't mm. discussed. Uh, because people would only like people, you know, the, the natives would only like people that they could kind of somehow manipulate or put in a corner. They'd never let us speak what we thought of them. I mean, how many mm-hmm. times, how many times do we get the chance to speak about the natives? The natives always speak about us and our culture and our religion, and we're just as messed up as them. They don't realise, um, and, and we're just as diverse as them, but they don't really think of it that they actually. I think they're so, so off the mark. I wouldn't even say they're ignorant, or maybe there's a, a lot of arrogance. But nationalism, you know, I mean, sometimes I hear the same kind of um, aspects when I go to Pakistan and somebody talks about Pakistan, Zindabad, you know, and it's like, well... Yeah, the toxic nationalism. Yeah, there's a real toxic nationalism. And I just go, well, what does that mean? You know, you know. Is it Pakistan so or you, is like, it sacrifice your life for Pakistan meme that just has been going around? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I will sacrifice myself for Pakistan. Yeah, that was actually pretty funny. That was it. That was like an attempt to address this nationalism, this toxic yeah. nationalism. That's just you're so right. It's pervasive. Like, don't talk bad so about immature, Pakistan. Isn't it? I, I mean, <laughs> it's juvenile. I, yeah, yeah, it's, it's very so, juvenile. It's so like, it's not even thought about. Yeah, <laughs> it's like grow up. Grow up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like, but we have to also admit that nationalism is also very, very prevalent here in the West. Oh, you know, you get, oh you, yeah. You know, it's just the same. You know, in, in America, you've got it. And in Europe, you've got it. You, you go to France yeah. and somebody's really nationalistic about being French and all that stuff. I can't stand nationalism. I think it's such yeah. a, it's such a thick... Thick ideology, <laughs> you know. I mean, bless him. When Bobby was talking about, oh yeah, it's British Asians, British Asians. I just got look. Let's look, let's even lose the word Asian, and let's just definitely lose the word British. I don't even believe that I'm British. Mm. I don't, you know, I don't even believe I'm Pakistani. I don't know what I am, but I'm not. I'm not going to be forced to be something. Yeah, yeah I don't Malang know what Bari. I am. It's that. Malang you know, I'm not Bari nationalistic Bari. about. I'm not nationalistic about yeah. an identity. I just think it's so, oh, God. I, I don't know what the word is. It's so thick. I just can't get my head no, around it. No, it's a good way to think about it. I, I'm thinking about something you said earlier about the, the people, like, lying about having detention or going to the library. And I'm thinking about identity now that you got me thinking about it. Yeah. And um, in, in 2015, you did this interesting interview for Vice with Jack Dutton where you said, yeah, I'm not a good Muslim, but I'm definitely not a bad one. And um, I'd be curious to hear now in 2020, could you tell us more about what you meant by those words and thinking about identity? Like you said, I'm not, I don't even know if I'm British. I don't even know if I'm Pakistani and like this, I don't know if I'm not a good Muslim or a bad one kind of, this idea of like identity, but also that comment is just so strong. um, It was difficult for me because when we started off in Fundamental, we did the Seize the Time album. And if you refer to that and you look at through the lyrics and everything, I'd actually gone on that little journey well before Fundamental and, uh, and, and, and I could see the prejudice at building against Muslims because, you know, the Muslims were quite a... Um, Scary. They, were, they weren't entertaining Western culture. They were working in Western culture, but they weren't submissive to it. They had their own style of doing things. They weren't really interested. So... I mean, when I say I'm not a, you know, I don't know if I'm a good Muslim or a bad Muslim, well, I'm, but I know I'm not a bad Muslim. It was basically based on me not, you know, I'd, I'd been, since the age of 15, I'd been going into pubs and in alternative culture and I never got involved in drinking alcohol or taking drugs, uh, you know, which I thought was very crass. If you remember the band Crass, yeah, Poison Girls, they were kind of, they came along a lot later, and they were teetotalers. They were. Suddenly, they didn't drink. They didn't drink, huh? No, Christ. they didn't drink. They were, they, oh. they were against stuff like that. I mean, so so it was quite interesting. I mean, my kind of principle, I don't have anything against people drinking or taking drugs or anything like that. It's just, I just did it for my parents. I did it for my father. And 
because I really loved my father and I think that I hurt him so much by becoming a Marasi with spiky hair and, you know, safety pins and going out and everybody in the neighborhood going, Allah ji, ye kya bla ho gaya? Ye kidar se a gaya? Ye janwar hai? Kareshi ka beta janwar ban gaya? So, you know, so it was just, I just, I thought I've pissed off my dad enough. How much more can I do it? And I just thought, okay, just keep these things uh, at bay. So, and then I actually, what was interesting, a lot of natives would ask me about Islam in the alternative scene because they didn't have no interaction with any Muslim or Hindu or whatever. At that time, I can actually safely say that besides me and my brother, there was no Asian punks around. There was no... You know, there definitely was, wasn't any. So they would ask us, and then I'd just go home and talk to my father or do a bit of research and give him some answers. They, they had no knowledge. And Islam wasn't high on the agenda at that time, politically. It was all to do with black and white politics. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, uh, but things changed, and I just knew it was going to go that way because I knew that we were a community which were which were quite, uh, most, a lot, of the, a lot of the community was very adamant to become more Muslim than, than less, hmm. and, and, and to express that, to show that. So, you know, I mean, I don't know if I'm a, you know, if I'm a good Muslim or a bad Muslim. I, I just know that, you know, I just try not hurting anybody. That's the... That's my kind of number one rule. Hey guys, I'm going to have a content update shortly. Um, (laughs) So thanks so much for sticking it out. Subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash rumspringa to unlock the rest of this episode. We're going to upload the second part tomorrow. We're going to get it all out before Halloween, baby. So enjoy a spooky night in quarantine.